appreciate that, Brother Phil. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm uh, 77 today. So, those of you that are um, uh, avid Psalm readers, then this is probably a very uh, 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 welcome and and comforting Psalm that you've read through numerous times. For those of you that um, are uh, just getting into this, uh, psalm reading. This may be a, a, a bit different from you, uh, what you normally are used to reading. Psalmists tell, there's, as you know about the book of Psalms, not one author um, wrote all of the book, except if you want to say that one author did, because it was all inspired by God. But uh, God used multiple men uh, to write down these prayers, these thoughts, these poems, these ideas. Um, that we now have the collection of the book of Psalms. And it's a beautiful um, book that gives us a wonderful picture, a variety of the, of the, of the, the entire walk of, um, of the Christians as we move through our daily life. Um, this is part of the series, uh, Habits. We talk about habits of daily living, habits of Christian living that we can um, uh, employ in our life. And I need to be careful, I say this every time, but I don't want anybody to feel like that if you, um, if you do the things that we're talking about in this series, these habits like fasting or resting or praying, or today when we talk about scriptural meditation, um, if, you're, if you do these things, that you'll somehow earn your salvation. That's not the case. This is not about earning your salvation. This is about a way for you to connect more fully to the heart, mind, and soul of God. It's an opportunity for you to, through these disciplines that have been going from the very beginning of the founding of of the Christian church back in the first century and even before that into the lives of the Hebrews as they wandered the wilderness and beyond. Um, These are disciplines that God's people have employed since God started having people. These are ways that we are able to connect more fully with the heart of God and put ourselves in the way of his transforming power. That's what we're trying to do here. And so last couple of weeks, we've talked about resting. We've talked about fasting. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about meditation. I've entitled the sermon, Vitamin M. That's for meditation. I know some of you are, uh, as soon as you say that word, all of a sudden you've got like three or four different opinions camps out there, right? We're already deciding, wait a minute, is this going to be one of those weird kind of hokey things that we start talking about new age stuff? Is he going to bring crystals and incense into this? No, none of that is happening, okay? Because we're not dealing with that. There are two, there are many different types of meditation that you can uh, talk about over the, the in, in the world today, and just about any pop psychologist will try to give you uh, tips and tricks, but I'm not trying to do that. All I'm trying to do is, is focus on what God's told us to do. And we're going to read that in God's Word in a moment, but to start off, you just need to understand that we're not talking about Eastern meditation, which you see come back time and time again in the public sphere in different formats. And that basically, they encourage you to empty your mind of everything, uh, get rid of, um, of all of your thoughts or, or ambitions or desires, and seek what they call inner peace and enlightenment. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, and I don't think you can find peace without Jesus Christ. And God has never told us to empty our minds and our thoughts and our hearts. He's always told us to be sober and ever vigilant, to fill ourselves up. And so we're talking about Christian biblical meditation where God encourages us to fill our hearts and minds with Him, His Word, thoughts about what He's doing. Um, he says in His Word that, that my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher. Well, we will never fully understand and grasp the, uh, the, the, the totality of who God is. But we can come as close as we can humanly if we take time 
to meditate on the, on the Word of God. So that's what we're going to be dealing with today. We're going to talk about a little bits here and there. So starting in verse 1, we're just going to read the whole chapter, um, verse uh, chapter 77, the book of Psalms, and we're going to see what, uh, what the psalmist has to say. Um, he starts off by saying, My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. And when I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old and the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? He has, has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. I will, surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on your work and I will muse on your deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were in anguish. The deeps were also the deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind, and the lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook, and your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It's a powerful, uh, powerful psalm, it really is. It's one that you probably need to read three or four more times to really get the depth and breadth of what the psalmist is saying. We probably won't be able to get into all of it today, but it does lead to what we were discussing you know, if you start reading this and you start looking at the way the psalmist is writing this, um, it's a good thing the Holy Spirit was the editor of the Bible. I'm just saying that. Because if a man was editing this Bible and Asaph, the guy that wrote this, turned this in for possible consideration of publishing, I can almost wonder what the editor would have said. Are you sure you want to put this in here? It's like, dude, this is really dark. I mean, look at what he's saying in here. I mean, he's, he's like, the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. Okay, I'm with you, I'm with you. And at night, I stretched out my hand. He goes, and my soul was not comforted. He goes, when I remember you, God, I'm disturbed. When I sigh, my spirit grows faint, he says. You keep me awake at night. This guy is going through some things. This guy is asking some serious questions. He's asking where God is. He's obviously going through a time in his soul where there was a lot of turmoil. He's obviously dealing with some issues that he doesn't tell us all the factors, just that he is struggling. Many of us in here have gone through the same, similar situations. Some of you haven't, but if you haven't, you will. 
It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Because part of life is change. Part of life is struggle. Part of life is grief and loss as we seek to find where God is every minute of every day. And this, this man is asking, God, where are you? I need you right now. Now, in this lament, and that's what this is, this is the beginning part, is a lament. It's actually broken up by six stanzas, but if you really want to get down to it, you can look and see that there's obviously two different, two different things going on in this one prayer. You have the first part, which is 1 through 10, which is definitely dark, like I mentioned. And then in around verse, middle of verse 10 and then into 11, there's a shift of focus, a change of his attitude. And you can see this uplifting, this uproaring um, a desire to seek God. And, to find, and, and the, almost is the point, he's like, I, I found him. I found him at this point. And we have to ask ourselves, really, you know, what changed? Well, we'll get that in a minute when we get to verse 10. But we want to start off right in the beginning. Because you can see, obviously, in verse 2, there are some things that are happening here. Verse 1 and verse 2. He says, I cry out loud. I'm seeking the Lord. And you can see that he's stretching out without weariness, but his soul is refusing to be comforted. It reminds me, and this is the same word that's used in Hebrew is used in several other places in the Old Testament. I know Mike's always looking for me. I can't pronounce it. I can't even spell it. So I'll have to get with you later. I'm sorry. But the thing is, when you start looking at this and you track these words through the Old, uh, the Old Testament, you see that there's a variety of other words, and this word is translated a couple of different ways. Um, always basically the same idea, but you get this essence, you get this idea, this, this, uh, this, this grief that just won't go away. Much like when Jacob heard the news that his son Joseph had been killed, when, they, when the brothers brought the, the, the coat of many colors back. I mean, he refused to be comforted. He was just saddened to the point. Um, we, we hear scripture talking about um, Rachel, and she couldn't be comforted the death of her children, and we, we get that essence and, that, that, and that, that, that nature in these words, because this is the same words that are used time and again throughout the Old Testament, and we see obviously here that this is something that was bone deep with him. He was struggling trying to find where God is. He says, and this is the part that really gets me, and I read this, and I'm like, I, it's like, I don't know, I get, I get frustrated. I almost feel uneasy reading this part. You know, I, I granted, I've read the end of the chapter, so I know where he's going with this. But if, if this is my first time reading through this, I, 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 it's weird. I mean, look what it says. It says, when I, re, when I remember God, I'm disturbed. Now, I, I looked that up, you know, because whenever you get these words here, you've you got to wonder what this means. And, and I know that sometimes the translators are really polite, and they try to use the best words they possibly can. And, I mean, this word was used like 34 times in the Old Testament. And in, in times of trying to translate that, it's not always easy to translate these words, especially in ancient Hebrew, because even, even now we struggle with some of the words and trying to get a full understanding. But this particular word is, is translated a variety of different ways. It was translated as a roar, as noise, as disquieted, as troubled. It's also being translated in the Old Testament as raging and tumultuous. Now, I know some of you guys are saying, well, I'm not a walking thesaurus, but don't all those words basically mean the same thing? And yes, they do um, basically mean somewhat of the same thing. But you can see the sense here. When you look at words like raging and tumultuous, and he says, when I remember God, you already know his soul isn't comforted. He says, I'm disturbed. There's a raging tumultuousness in my soul. And I'm struggling. 
And then in, in the New American Standard, it says, when I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Sigh, sigh. I don't know about you guys, but we don't like sighing in our house. Um, it's just something that, it just happens, you know. Like, for instance, when, when you tell the boy to go and take the trash out, and his first response is, <sighs> you want to smack him. You just do. You want to reach out and just go, pop, you know, because that's not the response you want from your child. You want them to hop right up and say, sure, Dad, right away, I'll do that, you know. And, I'm, and I know my sons do that every single time, so I'm really thankful and... and <laughs> Anyway, um, we're not going to go there. He's not here this morning to pick on, so I won't do that. But um, the point is, you know, when you hear that word, it means different things to us than what the psalmist was writing when he wrote the words sigh. He's bringing up a different word. This word means literally to meditate, to speak, to complain, to ponder, to sing even, to muse, to declare, to put forth. He's basically saying when I'm, when I'm musing, when I'm putting forth, when I'm, when I'm complaining... That's what this sigh means. Then my spirit grows faint. He's not talking about somebody who is at the, at the, 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 the moment of, of lots of activity with lots of enthusiasm, lots of excitement. He's really struggling. He's at that moment where depression is sinking in. Anybody that's ever suffered in those moments where the grief just overwhelms you and the sadness takes hold and you can't get past it, this, then you know what he's saying. You feel it. I did when I read this. When I read this, I had to take a minute and say, how did this guy know what I'm going through? I don't understand it, except obviously the heart of God knew what I needed. He continues on. He says, you've held my eyelids open. It's an actually interesting picture in the Hebrew. The word open actually isn't used. It just said, you held my eyelids you know, that's obviously euphemistic for you kept me awake. I woke up this morning at 3 in the morning. I hate waking up at 3 in the morning. Um, I really do. And I know it's really bad on Sandy because, you know, I'm tossing, turning, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm trying to do something, but I don't really want to get out of bed because I'm holding on to that idea that I may fall back to sleep. I did not fall back to sleep. But I was awake. And, it, you know, it occurs to me, Sandy's always better at this than I am, you know, because in the middle, when you wake up, the last thing you want to do is, is, is get up. You, I mean, especially that early. And I, I know that, when God has me awake for a reason, there's a reason, right? And I don't always know the situation. I don't always know what's going on. And so I just, I pray. I try to uh, get my mind focused where it needs to be. Sometimes I'll get out of bed to, to, to give Sandy a break so she didn't have the tossing and turning and go, read, go out in the living room and read the, read, read the Bible, just try to get a sense of, of where God is leading me. But, you know, this morning I just couldn't get a sense of it. I just had that, that, that disquiet in my soul, you know? And it was kind of frustrating because you get out, you get out into the living room or you get out into there and I got up for a brief period of time and I had this uncontrollable urge to call my father. And it's hard, you know? And like every dream I've had in the last three weeks has been about either my father or my mother. And I don't know what God is trying to tell me as he's helping me to process my own grief. But this is where we live, right? This psalmist who's putting these paper, this, this, these words on paper is telling us that he's real, that sadness exists. And sometimes you don't always feel like God is right next to you. He says you, he is. Sometimes we don't always feel it and we ask, God, where are you? That's what he's asking. He says, he begins to ponder. He considering the days of old. The years passed. 
Then he says in verse 6, and I underlined this in my Bible, and it says, I will remember my song. I looked in all the commentaries trying to figure out what that meant. I can't. Most commentators just gloss right over it. Some that choose to mention it, they just say, oh, he's remembering a song that he enjoyed. But that's not what he said. And I looked it up. The word-for-word translation is, I will remember my song. My song. And I had to think to myself, what song is that? I keep coming back to the moment when God reached into my life and changed me. The moment when I was walking down a path that was so dark that it wasn't going to lead me anywhere good. And I remember when the light of revelation came into my soul. My parents had sent me to this Christian school to get me fixed because I was a bad kid. And I was going to chapel every week. Every week I was getting the word of God spoken over me and it was sometime, sometime after Christmas, sometime in the middle of the winter in Florida, which isn't really winter, so it was like, I don't know, it was like 80 degrees out. Sometime when you're sitting there in the air conditioning and wondering what people in cold weather do and you're just questioning who God really is, at some point in there, something that was said struck a chord. And God began to progressively reveal himself to me so that by the time he was ready to fully manifest himself in my life, six months later, I accepted Christ as my Savior. And I feel like that was the song that he sang into my life. That's my song. It's my story. I'm not a songwriter, so I can't put it into words. I'm not a poet, so I can't make a nice, eloquent poem about it. All I can do is remember the night that God changed the course of my life. And then he says, I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. You see what we're going here. We're getting to this point where God is trying to get us to think about this. There is two very important disciplines that we should, as all Christians, act, uh, actively pursue. One of them is prayer. Prayer is an, an, a most, one of the most important disciplines that we can possibly do. And we'll get to that in a future sermon. But there's another mis and unused discipline, and that is meditation. Where we do, like the psalmist said, in the middle of the night when we're struggling, we remember our song, we remember who God is, and our spirit ponders as we think deeply on what God is, who He is, what He has done with us and through us. He's saying, this is my song, and my heart is going to dwell on what God has done. And as he begins to dwell, you see verse 7 and 8, and this is where it gets really hard. He said, he asking the questions, and you know, this is the part that really gets you. This is the part that I think that really frustrates, because a lot of us are like, I've got you right there, I'm right with you all the way. I'm willing to meditate, we'll think about God's word, I'll open up the book of Psalms, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll think about God's word. But there's, there's, a, there's a larger component of this. When, when he starts meditating in his heart, when he starts pondering in his spirit, and he's got all of this grief, all of this struggle, all of the things that are, that are keeping him up at night, he can't seem to move forward, and he's wanting to know where this is, this is when the dark question starts bubbling forth. And a lot of people look at this and they wonder, how can he possibly say such things? He calls himself a Christian, but he's asking fundamental heretical questions. 
Will God change? Will he, will he reject me? Will he never be favorable towards me again? Will his covenantal love fail? Not just fail, but fail forever is what he says in verse 8. Will his promises come to an end? Is he done with me? A similar question we could ask is, was I even saved all those years ago? Other questions are, is God really there when I'm crying out in the night? These are hard questions that this man is asking. I know I've asked them many times. I struggle with these questions. I'd like to say that I struggled with all those questions many, many years ago, but I don't. I struggle with them today. And here's the thing. When you're asking God, where are you? When you're asking God if he's really there, you, you don't, I don't think that we should feel guilty about pondering these things because God is not going to strike us dead for uttering the words that he's giving us. I believe sometimes these groanings, I believe sometimes this process, this writer is going through is a process that God wants him to ask those questions. Sometimes you need to articulate those questions. Father, why why did my son or daughter walk away from me? Why are they not in God's house this morning? Why did my parent or loved one die? Why did my child have to leave the earth? These are some deep questions. Why did I have to become financially bankrupt? Why did this happen? Why did I lose my job? What have I done wrong? These are all deep questions that you can ask God. Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Verse 9 is hard. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Notice right after he asked that question, there's the word selah there. It's one of those words we're not really sure what it means in Hebrew. It's just, uh, it's there. Most people believe that, uh, the uh, theologians believe it just means a, 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 reflect, a, reflect, a reflexive, reflective pause, reflective pause. So I pause when I read and I see Selah. Definitely comes to the end of a stanza. But he wants us to stop as he's writing this. The Holy Spirit wants us to take a moment to stop to listen and think, to meditate on what he said so far before he gets into the next section. And you can see verse 10 sort of culminates everything. He said, then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Now, some of you that have different translations, you may say, well, that's not what my Bible says. Um, and I noticed that as I, was, as I always read through all the different versions to try to figure out um, uh, you know, how the Lord wants me to, to go in this direction. And um, I try to stick with the word-for-word word for word translation, you know, the ESV, the, the NASB, the King James, New King James. I try to stick with the big ones. But I noticed in the King James and New King James, there was a slightly different um, passage here. And you'll notice if you have either one of those versions that it says in, in italicized words, I will remember, and then it goes off about the, um, about the, the years of the right hand of the Most High. And um, it's not exactly the right, essence of this in the Hebrew. It's, a, it's an idiom. It's a story. It's, you have to read this and you have to try to figure out exactly what it was that was being communicated to that audience when that particular phrase was written down. I like the way the New American Standard puts it. I really do. This is what it says. It says simply, it is my grief 
that the, hand, that the right hand of the Most High has changed. When I read that the first time, beginning of this week, first time in a long time, it occurred to me where this grief comes from, where the sadness comes from. It comes for a purpose. It comes to shape me and to mold me and to change me, to help me become what God wants me to be on the other side of it. And it's his right hand, his strong right hand, his powerful right hand that has changed my grief. And then he talks about remembering the deeds of the Lord. He goes, I will remember your wonders. And he goes on and recites all these wonderful memory. But you see that in verse 11 and 12. It's an interesting thing. You actually have four verbs that are being, um, that are being uttered there. I shall remember, I will remember, um, I will meditate, I will muse. These are all words that in the Hebrew are used as verbs. They're action verbs. They're, they're things that we should do um, uh, to move forward. It's actually a particular type of uh, verb called a hortatory verb. I know, Mike, that's a big word, isn't it? Hortatory. It means a, it, it's, it's a word that, that's inciting intentional activity. It makes us want to do these things. He's saying, I'm doing these, and you should too. That's what he's trying to encourage us. That's what he's trying to bring this out. And then he goes on and says, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God of works. Uh, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known the strength among the peoples. It's almost as though he's building to a crescendo, but he's he's almost like in the beginning of this. He's I don't know I, I got the sense that maybe he was like through gritted teeth trying to share this because he knew that God was there and he knows that the questions he's asking they are not the right questions, but they had to be said for a moment. He knows that God never changes. He knows God loves him. He knows God is with him. He just wants to see where. And so he sits back, and look what he says in verse 12. I will remember, I will meditate, I will muse, I will remember who and what you are. I will look back at what you've done. This is what we're talking about. And the thing is, and this is the most important part, when you talk about meditation on God's word, you can't do this lightly. It's not something you can just walk into and say, eh, I've read God's word. I'll just, I'll think about it for 10 or 15 seconds and then we'll move on. And even if you're, I mean, if you're really religious, I know Mike does this all the time, really religious, you might, you might actually take it a step further, right? You might actually do 15 minutes. That'd be good. Maybe even 20. How about 30? Maybe if you're really spiritual, you might spend a whole hour thinking about a passage that God has given you that day. Truth is, hardly, of, hardly any of us ever do. We're busy. We get moving. We don't take the time like we need to. But it's more than just thinking about God's word. It's coming to God's word, God's heart, with an honest and open heart. You see, God wants us to come to him vulnerable. He wants us to come to him with an open, honest heart, asking him to move. Sometimes God makes us groan. Sometimes God allows the circumstance in our life to get heavy so that we can reach out to him. He wants us to reach to him. We need to be willing to be vulnerable. See, the truth of the matter is, this Christian walk is not easy. A lot of people think that it's a pretty simple thing, especially in North America. We don't have any, we don't have people chasing us down to cut our heads off for our, for our faith. We don't have to meet in secret. We don't have to have watchmen outside for the secret police are on the way. We, know, we don't have any of those situations. It's really one of the first times in human history that we've been able to do this. 
even during the years when the Catholic Church held sway over the, over the majority of, of the free world, it was still a dark time for those that didn't follow the Catholic way. There have been always a, a level of dissenters that have followed God's word and God's word alone from the very beginning till now. It's not like Martin Luther showed up on the scene. He was the first one to have the idea to read God's word and actually apply it to his life. These people had been doing this for all along, and every time they come in contact with the Catholic Church, the powers that be, they were killed. It's always been a danger to be truly a follower of Christ, to be a Messiah, man or woman. The Christian walk we have is a fight. And honestly, if you think you can coast, you're going to fail every time. There is no coasting when it comes to God. So you come with an honest heart and you have an intentional level of remembrance, which is what he is doing. He's intentionally remembering what God has done to him and his people. And he's remembering how great God really is because he's beginning to recite the things that God has done in his life over the years and over the years of his people. You see that in verse 16. He said, the waters saw you. He's he's recounting creation. He's recounting all of the times that God's people have passed through the water safely to the other side. The clouds poured out water. The skies, the skies gave sound. Your arrows flashed. That your lightning was what we're talking about. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Nothing can stand before our holy God. And that's the memory that we have. You know, this is the interesting thing about it. And as we, we, as we move through this, you know, oftentimes we, we want to know, how, how does this apply to us? Truth of the matter is, as a Christian, we should be meditating on the word of God every day. You know, I shared with, I share with people that, that, that want to know how to, to go deeper into their faith that the first thing you should do is follow the Billy Graham principle of daily devotions. You say, what is the Billy Graham principle of daily devotions? Well, if you read his biography, he says from the time that he was a young lad to probably to the day he died, he says he likes to read, what is it, five or ten psalms a day? I think it was five. He'd just get up in the morning. Before he did anything else, that was what he did. He read the psalms. Let me tell you something. When you read these psalms... This is a songbook. And I don't know about you guys, but, but when I read the Psalms, I like to read them out loud. I like to actually hear the words wash over my ears, to wash over myself as I read them. Sometimes I'll put on the, an audio Bible. I've read a really good one that, that sort of brings out the essence. Sometimes I just want to hear God's word spoken. But these words should be prayed. These words should be sung. These words should be read aloud. So we can hear them as we recite them in our life. This is part of that meditation experience as we read through God's word and we allow it to just totally permeate our existence. This is what meditation should be as we seek the memory of God's word. And you see this man. This is what he goes through. He he goes through the process. Darkness is there. It's coming in deep. And then you see him coming out of this as the light of God's word bursts forth. As he begins to see where God wants him to go. It's a powerful picture of what a person can go through and where God is trying to lead them. This is what God is calling us to do. He's causing us to seek him in a deeper way. See, meditation, true, scriptural, spiritual, godly meditation, is lighting the fuse between understanding of the mind and the innermost part of the heart. That's what it really is. You're drawing a connection between your brain and your soul. And you're linking them together. 
with the bonds that can only be forged by God himself and through his word. You see here, he's having that memory of the time in the wilderness when his people wandered through there. You see it ending in verse 20 when he says that you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses. It's an interesting analogy, but it's one you see almost constantly through the Old Testament. There are several different ways you can study scripture. One of my favorites is to dive into a book and just, and just eat the meat page after page, verse after verse, as I, as I dissect whole, um, whole books that God has written, like Timothy or, or, or Mark or Matthew. But that's just one way. But sometimes if you just focus on one, and believe me, you can pick one book in the Bible and spend the rest of your life studying it and still never find the fullness of God's Word. I mean, every book is rich. I don't care if it's the one-pager Philemon or if it's the uh, multi-theological treaty, which is Romans, or whether it's Genesis. You can find a a wealth of knowledge and spend your whole life studying one book and never really understand it fully until you step into glory. But there's another way you can study Scripture, and I find in, in these later years, this is where I've been heading in my direction, is, is I look for what we call uh, biblical themes or theologies that you see that run through the entire Bible. Theologies that start in Genesis and work their way all the way through Revelation, as you can see God's hand moving. Some of you have mentioned that scarlet thread of salvation that's woven through every book in the Bible. You can see that because there is a connectivity that the Holy Spirit grants from Genesis to Revelation and all the way through the middle. And sometimes you see that connectiveness. And lately I've been seeing in almost every book that I've been reading, whether it's the New or the Old Testament, this um, unarguably, uh, to me, stark in my face um, theme of exodus and exile. We mentioned it a little bit in Sunday school, the idea that we go from exile to the exodus to God's promised land. And you see this as a constant theme. And I know when as soon as you say those words exile and exodus, we automatically put ourselves in the book of Exodus. We automatically link ourselves to Moses. And that's where we think that's where we need to be. But the reality is God is trying to say that this cycle of, of exile and exodus has been all the way through from the very beginning. If you remember, at the very beginning when the man was in the Garden of Eden, there was a moment where sin occurred. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's fundamental law. They were exiled from the Garden, and God gave them a way, a pathway forward to bring them back into the Promised Land with the prophecy of the children, child of Eve that would eventually crush the head of the enemy. And you see this theme that goes all the way through, and this is something that was obviously in the collective heart and mind of the psalmist as he's writing this here. He's seeing this, the idea of the memory of the Red Sea, the memory of what it meant to be, be a slave. We talked about this too in Sunday school, that sometimes slavery wasn't always viewed that bad. How many times did Moses have to confront his people. And they said, why have you drug us out to the wilderness? Slavery in Egypt wasn't that bad. We can go back, can't we? This whole manna every day, really? This singular diet? We ate better. Well, they didn't, but they thought they did. There was this idea of this constant exile and exodus, this memory of what slavery is. And we're just like that. How many times do we go back to the same sins? How many times do we keep reliving over and over again our failures? How many times do we keep going down the wrong road? More times than we count. More times than we're willing to meet, admit here in church. These sins are sins for a reason. And God is trying to tell us 
no matter how many times you want to go back to slavery, you're not going to. Because when I died on the cross, this is Jesus speaking, when I died on the cross, I broke the bonds of sin and death. I destroyed your slavery to sin. I bound you to me, but not as, as one that's going to be bound for a negative slavery concept, but one that's going to be bound to bring you to new life. And so I know you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering where you are. And some of you have gone through these times of grief and sadness so much that you felt like you've been overwhelmed. And I can't count the number of times I've met with people in the office here since I've been here just in the last three weeks when I've talked to individuals who are desperately struggling. A few months ago, I had a man I'd never met before come to my office. I don't even know why I was there. I, I wasn't even supposed to be here at this time. It was like, it was like 5.30 in the afternoon. I happened to slip over because the fencing was going, and, and uh, uh, Caleb was over there, and I, just, I had some extra work I wanted to do, so I came in. I sat down in the office. I left the front door open because at the time we were doing that a lot more, and, and this guy just knocks on the office and says, can I come in and have a talk with you? I'm like, okay, a little nervous, but yeah. Um, and he says... Uh, I don't want to live anymore. Okay. He says, in two weeks, I've got a plan. If my life doesn't change, I'm going to commit suicide. And I begin to ask him why, and he says, well, in two weeks is when the landlord's going to finally kick him out. He hasn't paid his rent. He had a lot of issues. There's a lot of other things going on. And he just said, I'm done. I'm not fighting anymore. I have no kids. I have no wife. All I have is these two dogs, and I'm going to find a home for them, hopefully. If not, well, at least I'll have one good meal before somebody finds my body. He actually said that. Not kidding. Thinking, wow, that's harsh. Spent some time talking with him that day. He came back two days later. He came back a third time. I called him on the date he said he was going to commit suicide. He didn't answer. I've called him several times since. He didn't answer. I did run into somebody who knows him and um, said he's still alive and kicking and things seem to be doing well. He's got a job and he's moving, moving well. But this happens more often than not. And to think that it doesn't is wrong. Truth of the matter is we are all oftentimes asking, where is God? And Jesus is saying, I'm right here, right? He says, I'm the friend that's going to stick closer to you than a brother. I will be there no matter what because I never change. You do. I never walk away from you, you walk away from me. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will always be there. He says, if you wish to come to me, I'm right here. And so if you're struggling with these areas, or if you're in need of that touch of God, and you are a Christian, you know that God has called you, you can recite all the things that he's done for you in the past and say, yes, God, I know you're there, and I know you're going to be with me, and I'm going to glorify you, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to move this into a moment of worship as I meditate on your word and your heart, as I seek to find where you are in this, as I seek to follow your path, to ignite that fuse between my head and my heart. But if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you're still enslaved. You're still in slavery to sin. You're still in slavery to darkness. And the good news is Jesus came to set you free. That's what he did. That's what the psalmist is writing. In this instance, he gave Moses and Aaron to carry them out. In the New Testament, we have Jesus. And you see this symbolism running all the way through the Old Testament into the New. Jesus came to set us free. 
If you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior this morning, you can. If you don't know where you're going to be when you step out of this mortal world, you can. If you need God to touch you and to move you, he will do that. If maybe you just need to, to take a moment to let this grief that you're carrying around with you or this frustration you're carrying around with you to, to leave it somewhere, the best place I've found to leave things is right here at this altar. I say it every week. I always encourage you guys every week. Phil encourages you every week. And I know Phil would be down there if you weren't up here leading sometimes. But that's the way it is, you know? Truth is, the altar's open. And I encourage you to come down and use it. Lately, it seems like the Christian church has gotten away from the altar. We've gotten away from what it means because we're afraid. We're afraid of what our fellow Christians might think of us. But you know, if the psalmist were afraid, this psalmist were afraid of what people would think of him, he never would have put pen to paper. Because those are some pretty hard thoughts he was having. But I think when it comes down to being authentic before the Lord, as we share our heart, as we share our sadness, as we share our grief, it gives us an opportunity as Christian brothers and sisters to come alongside each other and lift us up. That's where we should be. So there's twofold here. If you see a brother or a sister kneeling at the altar, instead of first thinking, man, what's wrong with them this week? They must be really bad sinners, right? Maybe we should think, how can I help my brother? How can I help my sister? Maybe our heart ought to be pricked in such a way that we realize that right now I'm not going through anything struggling right now, but obviously someone else in this body is. And if one part of the body is hurting, then the whole part of the body should be hurting. Let me go down and pray with them. Let me go down and put my arms around them. I remember once, well, many times, I've seen people out in the, in the audience crying, and, and I ask them, you know, what, what, sometimes I get to them and I can ask them what's going on, sometimes I don't. I remember one time somebody asked me, hey, I, I saw so-and-so crying in, in the service. Did you happen to see him? I'm like, no, I missed that. But obviously God put him in your mind for a reason. If you see somebody that's in need, go to him. So we're going to finish this with an altar call like we always do. If you're saved, you know what to do. If you're not saved, you don't know Jesus, your Savior, this is what you do. Come down and see me. We'll open up God's word. We'll show you what he has to say about redemption. If you're tired of being in slavery, to bondage, bondage to sin, let Jesus set you free this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning seeking a touch, a hand, a moment. Father, I ask that you give each one of us a time this week, more than just a few seconds, to really spend time meditating on your word with an open heart, and a willingness to intentionally remember all that you've done in the past. And Father, to use that memory as a springboard as we seek to follow you and to honor you and to love you. Father, I just thank you so much for all that you've done and said in the lives of all of us here. Lord, I thank you for the mercy and grace you continually pour down upon me. Father, as we seek to walk past the sadness that's in our life, we ask not that the sadness doesn't touch us, but that when it does, we can remember the goodness and the mercy along with that sadness that you give as we know that the burdens you have for us are never greater than you're willing to share the burden with. 
Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask this now because of what your son did on the cross. We ask now that you go before us and help us to be your hands and feet in this community. We ask this now in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Brother Phil. If you'll stand for the hymn of invitation. Mm -hmm. 